I am so grateful to all the new Relaxer Grid superfans who have begun supporting this show on Patreon. Since Adam Hurt's episode aired in November, Kyle, David, Bennett, Lana, Emma, Gloria, another David, Clint, and Lee have all added their pledge. Thank you all so much. For just $2 a month, superfans get exclusive content like a secret video that no one else gets to see or a Relaxer Grid sticker. Click the link in the show notes to join their ranks. Welcome to Relaxer Grid. I'm your host, Matt Brown. If you listened to my interview with Bruce Molsky, you heard him speak glowingly of today's guest. Natalie Haas is a world-class cellist who is best known for her work touring with Scottish fiddler Alistair Fraser. Together, they have performed around the globe and taught hundreds, well, probably thousands of students at camps in a variety of time zones. I've known Natalie for years, but it had been a while since we had caught up, and I was so glad that she could make the time for this conversation between legs of her tour with Alistair. Natalie Haas, welcome to Relax Your Grid. It's so great to be here and to see you, Matt, after all this time. <laughs> it's a pleasure. It's been so long. Are you currently on tour with Alistair Fraser? Sort of in the middle of two little tours. We had a, a Northeast tour, which just finished a few days ago, and we're headed to California this weekend. Um, so I am uh, got a couple days off and just visiting friends up in this area of the Northeast. What's it been like being back on tour with the COVID and, and everything connected to that? It's been amazing, actually, and I'm feeling so grateful for science and for the ability to get to do what we do again. And I feel like I never want to take that for granted again in my life. And um, so, so happy to be playing for people, with people, and seeing old friends and new is just magical after all this time sitting at home in front of a computer screen. What did you do during the quarantine part? It seemed like you were doing a lot of like online workshops and that sort of thing. Yeah. And to be honest, that that hasn't actually slowed down that much. Like I feel like that part hopefully is here to stay. And it, it, it has, you know, if one good thing has come out of COVID, it's that um, we still know how to connect our communities with music, even when the live thing is taken away. And it can be a really useful learning tool for, for people, especially people that, that can't travel, like to come to fiddle camps or um, it's a great um, way to, to, to keep learning at home on your own um, when you don't have another option. And uh, so, yeah, I've done a lot of online teaching. Um, I was doing that at Berkeley um, when they went online um, after spring break last year and uh, been doing a lot of workshops and uh, other random uh, teaching stuff online and, and have really enjoyed it, actually. Uh, it's been a nice way to, to keep our, our community alive <laughs> and connected. Yeah, I have found the same thing. And I feel like I've, I've met more people during COVID. Because um, I haven't, I haven't been touring as much. And even before that, and so th- I feel more connected, thanks to the workshops yeah. and, and online learning than I had been in the year before that, at least. Totally. Bruce Molsky was a guest on this podcast a couple episodes ago, and he brought you up. And he, he talked about how amazing you are. And inspired me to reach out to you when I did, because he talked to me about the experience you had as someone 
trained classically and with impeccable classical credentials, having attended Juilliard, <laughs> but who has become a very important part of the folk music scene. And I thought it would be really cool to now actually hear from you about <laughs> what it was like as young Natalie, um, falling in love with the cello, playing classical music, discovering Scottish music the way you did, and then having to rectify with the state of the classical world and and anything on the Scottish side of things that got you to where you're this incredible Scottish cellist and you play with people in other genres too. But I know there was a time when there was a struggle for you about classical versus Scottish, at least one imposed by other people. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I know that a lot of people probably are still going through that. The classical music world is slow to change. <laughs> um, and not, it's not, you know, uh, no criticism against them, but um, I, I'm so honored, first of all, that that Bruce <laughs> put me in that category, and uh, I, he's been a, a huge hero of mine uh, all my life, and uh, well, since I discovered fiddle music anyway, and um, yeah, I, I started with classical music because that was the only option, you know, for especially as a cellist. I feel like fiddlers have more paths open to them from when they start, but cellists, not so much. It's like uh, if you want to get uh, trained as a cellist, you, you study classically and you get set up with a good foundation of technique on your instrument and just, you know, being able to produce a good tone and all of those things are so useful. So, um, you know, I, I am so grateful to have had that. And then I uh, discovered fiddle camps, you know, shortly thereafter. Um, and that's where I met Bruce. Um, and obviously he had a huge impact on my sister's life. <laughs> um, and he's always just been just such a friendly mentor type to both of us, honestly. And um, I've loved playing with him over the years. And uh just the, one of the best human beings on this planet. Anyway, so yeah, I, I discovered the fiddle camp scene, you know, two years into my Suzuki training. And uh, having the Suzuki training was actually really helpful for that because it, it does encourage the ear learning as well as written music. So having having had both from the beginning really helped me in, in my life um, in music. And uh, yeah, just you know, I was I was kind of floating by on the classical stuff. I was I was enjoying it, but I, I don't know that I would have gone into music not having discovered that fiddle camp community and the music itself. So I was eleven when I went to my first fiddle camp, and I started playing at age nine, and um, and I discovered this whole other world out there that I had no idea that even existed, and it changed my life as as it did for many people who, who came through that Valley of the Moon Scottish Fiddle Camp that, that Alistair runs. And it, it, it has Scottish music in the name, but it's not just about Scottish music. Um, that's kind of the overhanging um, umbrella um, traditional music that, that brings in other genres too. So I, I was exposed to fiddle players from, from all over the North Atlantic world kind of a, as a kid and, and was, yeah. Uh, very grateful for that. And I, I ended up going down the conservatory path just because uh, there wasn't really another option uh, aside from Berklee College of Music, um, which I was kind of considering. But I, then I got into Juilliard and I was like, you know, this is a one time thing. I'm not this is not going to happen to me again. I, I might as well go all the way while I can. So I had a, a very open-minded cello teacher while I was there who kind of knew that I played other music and he was cool with that. He, he was actually a recommendation from, from a jazz cellist, um, Eric Friedlander, who I had a lesson with in New York and knew of, of my teacher at Juilliard as being this guy who's uh, really on the more liberal, 
uh, side of, of the classical uh, conservatory world. And um, so he recommended this guy and I had a, a great time with him. And I just kind of delved into the classics of the cello repertoire, which I hadn't really covered um, so much because nine is kind of a late age <laughs> in classical music to come to an instrument. So um, yeah, I, I, I went through all four years of undergrad at Juilliard and uh, all the time was still uh, going to fiddle camps in the summertime and started touring with Alistair while I was still in high school. And then I started touring with Mark O'Connor when I was in college. And um, so I was I was gone a lot, actually, <laughs> of my Juilliard days spent it either on the road or taking the bus up to Boston to hang out with my fiddle pals from Valley of the Moon that I grew up with. <laughs> so I had a D different Juilliard experience than most people did. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, the two kind of coexisted for a while for me until I finished conservatory. And then I was just like, I'm going to devote myself fully to fiddle music because that's where my heart belongs and really truly lies. <laughs> work through your your career so far of of collaborating with Alistair because the albums you've put out together are just gorgeous and they span quite a number of years and the the first track on on your first record together Calliope meets meets Frank is still so that's from the album Fire and Grace to me it established a sound that that you two have very consistently maintained all this time even even as all the growth and and collaborations have have followed when you made that album with Alistair how long had you been playing together do you remember yeah it was uh well I was it came out when I was still in college so 2004 um it was my junior year of college um and uh we started playing together our first gig was 1999 on on a ship in uh the San Francisco Maritime Museum and um on the Balclutha it's called and uh I was like 16 at the time I think um yeah so you know I was we were doing mostly local shows when I was still in high school and then we started he took me to Scotland for the first time for the very first North Atlantic fiddle convention when I was 17 years old just after I'd finished high school and that was kind of the beginning of our touring life together um and uh but it wasn't constant because I was still in school so it you know um we didn't really start going full time until after I had finished school. But um, yeah, I'd sort of grown up at, at his fiddle camp, so kind of had been imbued with a lot of the musical ideas that he um, expounds. And um, also kind of in his San Francisco Scottish Fiddle Club, I, I was a teenager in that. And, um, and we started kind of performing together through that group and um so yeah the album i think i was being very heavily influenced by by his musical ideas at that point because i was still a student but i had met daryl anger at that point so i was chopping and i i was um you know looking for new ways to express rhythm on the cello as a traditional instrument um and i was i was just soaking it all in you know I'll, i was still I guess, yeah, 2004. I started teaching at Valley of the Moon in 2001, I think, or 2002, 2002. Um, yeah, and I and I had no idea what I was doing, really, because I had been a student up until that point and, uh, you know, still was, was learning and, and kind of creating my sound. 
Um, but uh, yeah, so that album was kind of um, a long uh, dream for him of getting the cello back into Scottish music because it had been there historically in the 18th century. But but we weren't really going for that old sound. There's there's a few of those tracks on there that are like the slower pieces where I think I am actually playing the original bass lines. Um, but for the the faster tunes, we, I was still kind of finding my way through how 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 to use the cello as a rhythm rhythm, rhythm instrument for backing up fiddle tunes, and uh, so that was the the beginning. <laughs> That's so cool because having seen you two perform in a variety of venues over the years, when I listen back to that record, it's it already sounds like you you have an established sound yourself on the cello. But to know that that was still so, like in the formative years of this, did you, besides Daryl's influence coming from the violin and chopping, did you have a cello model outside of yourself for like, this is someone to listen to or be inspired by when playing with Alistair? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when I first came to Valley of the Moon, there was a cello teacher and that was the reason I went because um, it was Abby Newton and she's fan she's fantastic. Um, and then I met Rashad through Valley of the Moon. He came, uh, just as a guest for like a day or two. And, um, and I, I and my sister was playing with him in Daryl's band at the time. So, and he lived in California, not too far from where I grew up. So I had a, a lesson with him or two, two lessons with him. And he was definitely a big influence, but it's funny how you can learn from somebody when you're young and then, uh, take on all of their ideas, but then come out sounding completely different from them once you've kind of established your sound. But I was very inspired by him, but we were very different players <laughs> and very different people too. Yeah. Well, that's for sure. <laughs> that makes so much sense. So what I'm hearing is that the, the original, Natalie Haas sound that we know and love is like maybe maybe not equal parts, but parts Daryl Anger and Abby Newton and Rashad Eggleston, and then and then what Alistair might have said to you, and then what you added yourself. Does that seem like a fair stew of a sort of yes? Um, but then there's also the element of learning from other instruments, and that was really key for me um, because there weren't that many cellists doing what I wanted to be doing. I would be kind of listening to what the second fiddle was doing when they were not playing the melody and trying to copy that. And I think I did a lot of that, like listening to people like Laura Risk and um, Hanukkah and, you know, uh, people at Mark O'Connor's camps. Um, just, yeah, because there there weren't so many cellists um, playing that way, I, I, I spent a lot more time listening to fiddle players. <laughs> so you you referred to in the composed repertoire of Scottish music that there were bass lines written or, or or are they specifically cello parts that that were written and preserved they are and they might have been played by a harpsichord as well but they yeah it does say on the on the frontispiece of, of these manuscripts that it's for for cello or bowed bass they would call it how typical was it historically for a scottish music group to be just one violin and one cello that's what it looks like in a lot of the sort of paintings and woodcuts from that time um, that you see a cello and a fiddle. And often it's like one of a really famous fiddler like Neil Gow and his brother Donald played the cello. So they, they occur in a couple of paintings um, and there's like a piper off in the corner. So um, it's yeah, it was definitely 
used in dance bands at, at that time and drawing rooms, you know, probably equally, these musicians would have been playing for high society events and the rural kind of barn dance kind of things too. <laughs> awesome. Nowadays, how common is it for you to see at the camps uh, or just out in the world with Scottish music for you to see cellists playing with fiddle players? Is that a lot more common now? So much more common and it's so great to see and it's just like kind of hard to believe. Um, but yeah, these the fiddle camps have blown up. Um, lots of cellists, like we've had to expand our cello faculty at, at all of them <laughs> to account for the number of cellists that come. So I think there's about 30 cellists. Sometimes I think we've, the most we've had is like 35 or something um, uh, to Valley the Moon and, and our course on the Isle of Skye in Scotland. Um, so yeah, it's, it's very heartening to see all of these new players up and coming. And actually, yeah, a lot, lot more cello being used in trad music in bands too, in professional contexts, as well as, as the amateur um, in the fiddle, fiddle camp world. Um, in Scotland, especially, I feel like there's a lot more of it you hear nowadays. That's so cool. Well, you've had a, you've had a large impact on this music. Alistair teach at a number of camps. You've already mentioned several of them. Is there also one in Spain? Yes. Yeah, we've had one uh, called Crisol de Cuerda, which uh, has been going like 14 years now. Um, and there's a lot of cellists that come to that too. We have two, uh, myself and another cello faculty always. Um, and we ha had one in Australia, which is kind of undergoing a big change now because of COVID. <laughs> we can't go there and they can't leave. <laughs> so <laughs> they're having to sort of rejig it a little bit. But we, we had uh, String Mania in Australia. And then Alistair's got another one in California, which is kind of the sister camp to Valley the Moon called Sierra Fiddle Camp. And then I teach at others um, also that, that he's not involved in. Right. You're involved with Mike Block's camp, right? Yeah, yeah. And that's cool because they're not really calling it a fiddle camp. It's a string camp. So the cello is given equal weight, <laughs> of course, because he's a cellist. Right, as it should be. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I noticed I noticed that during COVID that Mike had that online series that you've been involved with, um, with those guided practice, practice sessions. Yeah, which is like a whole different concept of a workshop for me. It's not a workshop. It's, it's like you, people get to practice with me or with whoever the teacher happens to be. And I, I had to design a whole repertoire for it because I don't really have a practice routine. So I thought, okay, what would I want in my practice routine if I were just coming to Celtic music for the first time? And so that's, that's what I did. And it was really fun, actually. <laughs> and are you still actively teaching for Berkeley? Um, I'm actually taking a year sabbatical because I'm kind of I'm in the process of moving to Spain right now. And uh, so I'm kind of not uh, in the area and they're transitioning back to on in-person learning. So that that wasn't going to work this year. But I am actually going to tomorrow is where I'm headed <laughs> to Berkeley for to do a, a roots day just as a visiting guest artist. So I want I want to stay involved there as much as I can because I, I love what they're doing and I love the people in the string department are amazing yeah and they they have a campus in spain right in valencia they do yeah um and the you know spain everything was going a little more slowly there with the vaccines so that um i did contact them but they they weren't hiring at the moment but that might change <laughs> hopefully <laughs> when you did work at berkeley were you specifically helping 
cellists play roots music or were you teaching people of different instruments? How did that go for you? Different instruments. Um, but yeah, the, the cellists that I had, and, and it's kind of across the board too, depending on what the students want, because there's a, a big array of people inter- interested in different things there. They might be music majors, they might not be, and then they might you know, come with a very specific idea of what they're there to learn, and or they might just want a, a broad kind of departure from classical music. And um, and I'm happy to teach them what I know. I you know I'm not a, an expert in jazz or anything that, that the Berkeley String Part Department is more known for. Um, but that's what's so great about it is that it's so diverse and we have so so many offerings. Um, so yeah, I, I envy the students there because they they've got Bruce, they've got Simone Shaheen, they've got Beth Bahia Cohen, who's like an expert in Greek and Turkish music, and um, and then they have got you know Mimi Rabson does klezmer and classical and jazz, and yeah, in terms of jazz, we've got you co- and rock and all that stuff we've got you covered. But then there's all these folk uh, idioms that have come out recently in the in the last 10 years or so as they get um new faculty um and so i it's just a really exciting place to be well it's cool that to have had already on this young little program of mine several people who've taught at berkeley bruce and yourself and uh hopefully more to come in the future so i'd love to have you talk us through a couple pieces of music that you've recorded with alistair that i've just plucked from your discography so far okay And I don't have my physical copies of the album. So if you don't mind being our source of liner notes, but also things that might not have even been in the original packaging. Yeah, I don't have the CDs on me right now anyway. So um, I'm just going to tell you what I remember about them. (laughs) That is so cool. Okay, this is going to be really fun. Um, And I tried to pick out an assortment of things. I I listened to your entire catalog a couple weeks ago. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Wow, that is quite the endeavor. And then came up with these 10 songs. Okay. We've already talked about Calliope makes, Meets Frank, which is track one on Fire and Grace. And I'd love to just jump around in no particular order, although I'm going to save the new album for last. That I can easily do. But one of my favorite tracks you've ever made on any collaboration is the the one that begins with, with Highlander's Farewell to Ireland, because it's you and Alistair, Martin Hayes and Dennis Cahill, my favorite Irish duo, and then the aforementioned Bruce Mulski. Tell us a little bit about how that collaboration between the three different groups, old time, Scottish, Irish, came together, and then anything you remember about actually making that medley. Yeah, absolutely. So we um, had a band, and, the, and it was kind of led by our various uh, agents. The band was called Highland Heath and Holler, so you can see why that would be like a concept that an agent would come up with. <laughs> so, uh, um, but anyway, it, you know, it was led by them, but then musically we just hit it off um and it was so fun to kind of try and find the common repertoire between these three cultures and um and that was kind of one of the seminal pieces that that um 
that is shared by by all three. And uh, so it was a Straspe starting out, um, which Robert Burns actually used to to write one of his songs to called Highland Harry. And th- and there's actually some classical composers who took that on and did um, arrangements of it, Beethoven. Um, and then it made it across the the pond. So it's called the Highlanders Farewell to Ireland. So the Highlanders were in Ireland and probably fighting or I, I don't know what they were doing there, but, um, but then they left and made it over to the, the States and, and Canada, I think. Um, so the Irish version is actually called the Killarney Boys of Pleasure and it's a reel. So it, it transferred from a Strasbay to a reel as it crossed between Ireland and Scotland, which are very close actually. Um, so you know, especially Donegal and and Scotland are the closest, and they have a lot of common repertoire. Um, and anyway, the Killarney Boys of Pre- Pleasure, it, you can tell that it's the same melody. And then uh, Bruce then plays his version of the the old time version of the Highlanders' farewell as a hoedown. <laughs> It's all the same tune. <laughs> um, so it was, that was one of the ones that that came up uh, sort of at the beginning as something that was shared between the three cultures. There's a couple other ones like uh, Lord MacDonald's reel, which I believe is, is that, what is it called in the old time music? I can't remember. Leather Britches. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, try to, to find the the commonality. Um, and there's there's a lot of it, and these guys are just so easy to to play with too. Just so you know, Dennis is is one of my favorite accompanists in the world, and trying to to fit into the minimalist approach that he uses, um, but still getting this bigger band sound. And the three of those guys together, um, the fit, three fiddle players, is they're just my favorite combination of people and uh, musically. I mean, they're very different musically, um, but it, you can, and they all have such an individual sound that is so recognizable, immediately recognizable. So um, kind of an interesting combination. Uh, Alistair loves to make up harmony parts, so yeah, there would be a lot of that. Um, but, you know, once one of them just slams into a tune that's from their own culture, it's just such a good feeling. Um, so, uh, yeah, we I, I can't remember really that much about the creation of that, but I, conceptually, um, it, that's what strung it together is that it's just one melody shared by all three cultures. That is so cool. And I I love that adventure of finding finding tunes that are that are still extant in the old time community, but obviously are Scottish and Irish, or at least one, if not both. Uh, and I remember when y'all were touring, how how long did that project last? Was it just like one tour or a couple? No, it was it was a couple over a couple years. Yeah, because I remember that branding. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know that I ever got to see the whole like the show with all of you in it i've seen each act separately multiple many many times um but i don't know that i ever got to see it live so having it on record is such a treat and for anyone coming to the music now who wouldn't get to see the the tour 
um, yeah, that's a that's a beautiful collection. And I love Highlanders Farewell. I actually put it on my last fiddle record. It's a killer tune. Okay, next up, there, there are two tunes off of Abundance that I want to talk about. And that album seemed to be, seems to have quite a number of collaborations. So I want to start with the um, the jazzier one, the hot club tune. What is, <laughs> my French isn't very good. How, do, how, how does one say that name? Hot Club d'Ecosse, the hot club of Scotland. <laughs> actually a commission that Alistair got from uh, a dancer friend of his, a Scottish uh, country dancer. She's been coming to fiddle camps forever and uh, she's part of the committee of of the two Californian ones. And um, so uh, it's a stress bay with a kind of a Django uh, and Stefan feel to it. Um, So the the tunes themselves are, are, you know, they, they sound like they could be trad fiddle tunes with a couple like harmonic uh spots that are kind of interesting um uh, but uh so yeah we we really went crazy on the on the inviting guests and doing overdubs on that record and that was really fun it was a totally different studio experience than um just just the two of us um so we had Corey DeMario on bass and uh Stefan Amadon on drums and he's such a sensitive player um so uh that was really fun and unfortunately we did it all kind of we we had done our parts first and they 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 recorded onto it later but they did a beautiful job so that's a really i like that track a lot too i'm glad you chose that (laughs) and it it doesn't sound like it was pieced together oh good (laughs) i listened to that track and i could imagine all of you in the room together um and I love like you're doing this pizzicato comping that's very reminiscent of Django and doesn't have the the Richard Green, Daryl Anger, Brittany Haas uh, chop, <laughs> chopping thing going on. Like it's it's yeah, it's, it's all thumb. It's all thumb. And uh, that was, you know, when I I mentioned that Eric Friedlander, the jazz cellist in New York, who I had a couple of lessons from, he was the one who introduced me to seventh chords. And that was kind of the beginning of a phase um, for me. <laughs> And you got to tap into it here. Yeah, totally. The other track off of Abundance that I want to talk about is the one that features Dominic Leslie, who's now in a band with your sister, uh, Hocktail, and the tune is called Les Jumeaux. Can you tell us about that one? Yeah, that's part of the same dance suite that that Alistair wrote for that um, good old friend of his. Um, and Les Jumeaux are the twins. They're her two boys who grew up at fiddle camp since they were babies. And so um, Ian and Will Muir are their, their names, and uh, um, they, they're... Uh, Will especially is is a huge part of the the fiddle camp community, and he's just a great guy. Um, so 
you know, Alistair, Alistair wrote the tune. Um, I'm not really sure how he was trying to express that twin concept in that, but it, I know it, it does change time signatures a lot. It's kind of a jig, but it it changes between a 9-8 and a 6-8 a lot. And we were so lucky to get Dominic um, on this recording, and um, I, I love what he did with it. He it just, um, I, I at the time, you know, he wasn't in, in Hocktail yet, and I, I knew him from working with him at Berkeley, actually, and uh, just one of, one of my favorite mandolin players, and he did a beautiful job. We've talked about the camps a bunch of times, and we might as well mention on on one of the records, uh, we, we have a tune called Valley of the Moon Reel. Is this something that you or Alistair wrote about that camp? Yep, Alistair wrote it, and it is uh, in tribute to the Valley of the Moon Scottish Fiddle School, which has been going since 1984, I believe. Um, so it's one of the oldest fiddle camps in the country. And it has been, I mean, I already said just what a huge impact it had on me and on my sister and um, so many other musicians of our generation that chose to make music their livelihood because of that camp. Um, because it was, you know, just really uh, seminal in, in helping us find our, our voice as, as young people um, and giving us kind of a, a purpose. Um, so uh, the Valley of the Moon Reel, again, with the seventh chords, I was... <laughs> Just going a little bit over the top, maybe, but it, it's uh, it's just fun. Um, and we've performed that a lot with the dancer Nick Garris. And, and so I, I kind of associate him with that tune, even though he's not on the record. Um, but yeah, Valley of the Moon Reel is it's just a great tune. And it's got this kind of riff, uh, which is like one of those kind of joyful triumph of the human spirit moments. <laughs> hearing about Valley of the Moon. And when I first heard about you and your sister, I grew up on the East Coast. And so I went to other fiddle camps. I went to the Swannanoa Gatherings Old Time Week. I went to Jay Unger and Molly Mason's Ashokan and had, I think, a, a similar, similarly formative experience as you two had and many have had on the West Coast with Alistair's camps. And I have now, as a teacher, started sending my students in in either direction, depending on where what what coast people are on. Like, to send send young students to these camps to just give a chance. I think there's nothing that replaces an immersive week or long weekend where you can just really, you don't have to be ashamed of loving whatever kind of vernacular music and you meet other people who are 
equally excited and, and have no shame whatsoever about you're with your people <laughs> fiddle tunes yeah. And, yeah exactly so for anyone listening who hasn't yet gone to camp like what we're describing do it many of them are for people of all ages so adults can do it as well as kids sometimes the kid you know if you're young enough you have to be chaperoned but my mom came with me the first couple of times and she loved it she'd go off and sightsee and then go to the square dances at night and listen to the concerts and the jams. Nice. So it's a very wholesome. Sounds very familiar. And... <laughs> <laughs> My mom did that yeah. too. <laughs> yeah, it's a very family-friendly experience that, like you say, it, it has changed a lot of our lives, this sort of thing. So we've spoken about your sister, Brittany, a number of times, and I think I met her before I ever met you, but I heard about you and then I got to hear you play with Alistair many, many years ago. Tell me about this track on the album Ports of Call that features Brittany, uh, Megan and Jared, or you were telling me Megan and Jared's waltz. Yeah, I, it's a tune that I wrote for my best friend's wedding. It, it was a commission, uh, but ended up being a wedding gift, of course. Um, and she is not a musician, but uh, she has been to a lot of our concerts, and she always says that she loves Josephine's waltz. Is her favorite tune that we play? So I was going to try and write her something that was reminiscent of that, and the kind of one of the defining characteristics of that tune is that the A part has three phrases in it, which is unusual. So I, I wrote a tune with the three phrase A part as well. <laughs> and that's called Megan and Jared's Waltz. It's in F, one of my favorite fiddle keys. And, uh, and then we go into a tune, which has become a really popular session tune in Scotland uh, called The Cavers of Kirkudbury by Mike Vass, who's one of my favorite composers um, and multi-instrumentalist. And yeah, we, we just want to play with Brittany whenever we get the chance because she's just the best. She makes everybody sound better. And she's amazing at what she does. So um, yeah, we th that was another overdub situation. Um, we recorded her actually in my parents' house while we were probably on tour there. And, and she must have uh, been there for some reason or another. But um, yeah, she just did a couple of takes and she nailed it and uh, came up with these beautiful second harmonies. And yeah, uh, she's the best. Before I met you on this Zoom call where we're recording, I found a couple YouTube videos of you and her playing together, and I can't I can't pick a favorite, but I will link to at least one of them in the show notes so that people can go watch a video of the two sisters Haas uh, play together. Because when you two play together, it's just as magical as you'd ever think. When when people think about like brother duets and sister duets for for singing, it's the same with with the string parts. And and the key of F major is a beautiful cello key with, you know, you have that low C and it's just like, can't get any better than that. There is one tune that I wanted to ask about purely because of the name. There's one on the album In the Moment that's called Trip to Pakistan. Does this refer to an actual trip that was made? You know, it must be. It's not one of our tunes. It's written by an Irish flute player called Niall Kenny. And um, 
I think this was, it was a tune that was made in the more innocent times before all of the tumult in the Middle East was going on. Um, and I, yeah, so I, I think it was written probably for an actual trip that he took there. And uh, it's a great tune and it's become one of the kind of session classics. Um, so we've always loved that. And I, I had great fun making up that bass line. <laughs> That brings us, that's my little survey of, of a slice of your repertoire from, from before the latest record. But I wanted to end the episode by having you tell me about the new album, the newest album, and, and then we have a couple different tracks that I selected. But what's, what's the name of the record? Yes, it's a hard one to pronounce. It's called Syzygy. And uh, we chose this word because um, we had heard about this concept of, of sort of astronomical beings coming into alignment. And it's actually usually referring to three things. Um, that's the astronomy meaning. Um, but there, it turns out after doing some more research on it, that there are other meanings going back further. Um, philosophy, other sciences use this word. And, and it is actually about two things and Alistair likes to say that he's been saying this on stage recently and I'm like ugh I can't believe you're actually using this word the yoking together of two things or two oxen probably originally it comes from Greek um but I think philosophically it's talking about two things coming into alignment but keeping their individual characteristics each one so that's that's why we liked it um and uh because that's always been our goal um, so that's that's what the word means. Um, the album is all original music, um, and it's kind of like I've been I've been writing tunes sort of sporadically over this whole time that we've been playing together, but very sporadically. Um, but at, in this album, we were really going for equal collaboration, um, and so it's half my tunes, half Alistair's tunes, and we arrange it all together. But the melodies are kind of half and half. Um, yeah, we had a, a great fun um, writing this music and and we're loving playing it, playing all of our own music on stage just feels like a, a good arrival point. <laughs> wow. Okay, that that explains a lot because this <laughs> of of all the records, this one feels the most different to me. Mm -hmm. And I think it maybe is because you've each contributed equal amounts of repertoire. It also strangely or kind of incredibly it also, to me, feels the most varied in terms of oh, yeah. the kind of music, even though it's half Natalie, half Alistair, and then the yoking together. Yeah. <laughs> if, you, if you hadn't told me that you and he wrote this music, I would say, oh, this one is an old piece from this country, and that one's an old piece from that country. Oh, wow. And this maybe is a newer, but I, I feel like it's a, 
it's a pretty impressive achieve, achievement of a record in that I was kind of tricked into thinking that this represents a, like a wide variety of things, but I maybe that was the goal. Yeah, yeah. I mean, or not really even, but that's what came out and we're very happy with that. <laughs> um, and we've uh, heard, had a lot of feedback from, from friends and they're saying that I, I'm really hearing your chamber music influences come out here. And that's kind of always been the goal is to, you know, the Fire and Grace was full of this flamboyant uh, energy, like, you know, trad tunes played fast and um, exciting. But, and we love that. We always will love that. But um, we're way more interested in kind of sophisticated arranging and writing and trying to write not tunes so much, but suites and um, things that have more of a journey. <laughs> so that was the goal. You have achieved that goal. It's a beautiful record. And before I ask you about the three tracks that I picked out, it makes me think, have you two ever had a chance to like score a ballet or like work with a bunch of dancers or a theater company? Because it seems like this is that mindset would fit really well with like other forms of art as a. Yeah. Yeah. We, we have done works with some some dance companies before and mostly uh, more trad stuff or people who are also interested in modern stuff, but they've used our pre-existing music to choreograph whatever it is they're doing. So I, no, I would be really interested in in doing that in real time with a, a dance company or, or a theater company or whatever. If there's any choreographers out there, I think someone could literally just choreograph this entire record. Mm, that would be fun for us. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so the first one I'm curious about in particular is one with, with apparently a Norwegian connection. Can you tell me about that one? Yes, I think that is this the opening cut on the album. It's um, A Lien of Olesund, and I'm sure I'm pronouncing that wrong, but um, it's a tribute to Anbjorg Lien, who's one of my favorite fiddle players, and I listened to her so much um, as a teenager. And that was because she was coming through Alistair's camps again with all these uh, influences that we were getting at the camps. So, she, yeah, she's just amazing and such an inspiration, especially as a, like, a, a, a a woman in trad music. Um, she's one of the leading lights. So, um, yeah, I had this one album of hers called Prisme, um, which came out in the late nineties, I think. And, uh, there was one track on it, which I loved called Flutteren or something. I'm not sure how to say that either, but, um, it like changes time signatures all the time, but it's this gorgeous melody. So I, I was kind of writing a tune with that one in mind, but I was just going for the concept of trying to make a, a melody sound musical, but still uh, changing time signatures a lot. And um, the B part is drastically different and there's a C part as well. And so um, hopefully I've sort of achieved what I was doing without making it sound too much like hers. It's so cool. And I think you're right that if you're in danger of sounding too much like one thing when writing a fiddle tune, just make sure to add extra parts. <laughs> <laughs> so that at least one of the parts is far enough away from the original. Thank mm -hmm. you. 
I love her music, and I'm so glad to know that this is a tribute to her. I don't know even know where. My dad was an omnivore in terms of buying folk music CDs. Even though we were mostly an old time music household, we'd get you know Abby Newton CDs, and all these things would come into our house. Oh yeah. And there was an album of hers. I'm forgetting the title. That was definitely part of the rotation um, for me in the '90s as well. Okay, hmm. I think I can pronounce this next one. It's called Toll House Tumble. <laughs> Is this a you or an Alistair tune? That's an Alistair tune. Um, I think it's usually pretty easy to tell, actually. <laughs> like we, our compositional styles are are quite different. But um, anyway, it's a waltz that he wrote. I think for the longest time it had the working title of Soundcheck Waltz because he started writing it during a soundcheck. And I'm not sure where Toll House Tumble comes from, actually. You'll have to ask him that. But uh, yeah, it's it's a it's a crazy tune, harmonically speaking. Um, just kind of, uh, he uses a lot of like harmonic minor scales. I think he likes that sound a lot. Um, but it, it's changing keys a lot too, which is um, sort of, uh, uh, you know, Definitely a departure from all of this drone-based music that we play most of the time. There's one more tune I want to ask about, and it's another Alistair composition, and it has a long Spanish name. Do you mind saying it for me? You've been to Spain more than I have. Yes, it's called La Llegada de los Trovadores, and it means the arrival of the troubadours. And um, basically, he's been to Spain a lot, too. We've toured over there quite a fair amount over the years, and I've actually been living there um, in the past couple of months. And it's actually cool to see that, you know, this thing that started as an imaginary concept in his head is actually real. And this happens in Spanish villages all the time where you kind of don't know how the word gets out, but somehow it does get out that, that the musicians are coming to town like the, or the, they already live there, but they're, they're going to present something and it might be a parade or it might be a, a little impromptu concert where people start dancing in the streets. And it's just, they love to be in the streets partying, having fiestas and parades and all of that stuff. So in his mind, he was thinking about, and he loves this concept of the troubadour. Um, so uh, about not just musicians, but like the musicians, the jesters, the singers, the um who knows what else, um, just arriving in the town and, and the word getting out and this whole group of people coming to meet them. So that, that was the idea there. It's definitely got a little bit of a Spanish flavor kind of <laughs> harmonically and, and rhythmically as well. Awesome. Well, we will end the episode by playing this track in its entirety, I think. I, I was going to do another one, but because of the trajectory, I, I love this concept and uh, celebrating the, the troubadour's arrival. Um, 
For those who are Patreon supporters of the program, you get to hear Natalie talk us through three of her favorite recipes. So if I know I know you're a fan of fresh food and delicious food, and um, thank you in advance for that. You can support the program for just $2 a month to get things like Natalie's recipes and Bruce Molsky playing a guitar piece. But <laughs> for now, Natalie, thank you so much for taking the time in the midst of your traveling life as a cello troubadour. <laughs> I love that. Thank you. And it's such a pleasure to talk with you. Thanks for having me.
Relax Your Grid is produced, edited, and mixed by me, Matt Brown. Tim Brown provides production assistance. Otto Allard is the designer. If you'd like to hear all of the songs played on the show, make sure to check out Relax Your Playlist on Spotify. There's a link for that in the show notes. Tune in next time for my conversation with visual artist Greg Block. And until then, relax your grid. Relax your grid.